0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So this message is called, No Compromise, is inspired by the book, No Compromise, the life story of Keith Green by Melody Green. But basically this message is going to walk us through some spiritual lessons from Keith Green and from Leonard Ravenhill. These are two characters that became a little more well-known in the time period that we're at with this series, kind of in that 70s, mid to late 70s time period even though their ministry, especially Leonard Ravenhill's, spanned beyond that one decade. Because we're in the 1970s, these were the two characters I wanted to feature because both of these people have really impacted my life and Eric's life. And I would say what impacts me most about both of these men is their relentless spiritual passion. So we're going to talk about that and unpack their lives a little bit. I wanted to start with this quote from Catherine Booth. She was the co-founder of the Salvation Army, and she wrote these words, I think it was in the 1800s, so we're talking multiple generations before a lot of what we're going to be talking about today, but her words are so poignant and so applicable to what we're going through today, even in Christianity, that I wanted to start with Her words, when the church and the world can jog comfortably together, you may be sure there is something wrong. The world has not altered. Its spirit is exactly the same as it ever was. And if Christians were equally faithful and devoted to the Lord and separated from the world, living so that their lives were a reproof to all ungodliness, the world would hate them as much as it ever did." very very convicting words in light of a modern church that is always sort of pining after attention and favor and approval from the world and this concept of the world and the church jogging comfortably together don't we see that everywhere we look today in christianity and obviously this has been a problem in previous generations as well for her to write those words way back then first john 2 15 do not love the world or the things in the world if anyone loves the world the love of the Father is not in him. Do we take those words seriously today? Are we pining after the things of this world? Are we setting our affections on the things of this world? Are we sort of always kind of letting our gaze drift over to what the world is doing? Because if we are, if we begin to love the world, he says here very plainly that the love of the Father is not in us. So when we talk about no compromise, the the entire focus of this message is understanding this passionate purity that God wants to cultivate within us where we have that single-minded focus on him and we're not trying to blur our Christianity with the things of this world. Now, there are two different ways to go about that lifestyle of no compromise. One is a fleshly legalistic way, but the other is true spiritual passion. And that's what both Keith Green and Leonard Ravenhill had, which is why I want to focus on them today. I want to share with you a story that maybe some of you have heard before. This happened to Eric and I before we had kids. It was when we were traveling and speaking in churches all around the country and even overseas. And we were seeing a lot of compromise in the church, but it didn't really hit home ever like it did this one night when we were in a green room, which is kind of a room they usually have for speakers or worship leaders or singers, kind of a, a place to kind of regroup, get some water, go over your notes, whatever. It's like a prep room. And we were about to speak at this big mega church, And we were in the green room right before the service started. And the other people that were in the green room were the worship team. They were going to open this mega church service. And I was sitting in there, don't remember sipping my water, looking over my notes, I don't remember what, but this group of worship leaders, they were in there and they were just bantering about worldly things for about 30 minutes. They were joking about these things they had seen on Saturday Night Live and these hilarious jokes that they had seen on the show. And they were talking about these latest blockbuster movies. And they were were using a lot of just crude humor and really taking delight in these really perverse things that were in the culture. And they were joking and laughing and taking it lightly and just Reveling really in kind of all the popular worldly entertainment at that time. And then after a long time of doing this, this kind of secular worldly banter and repeating all these jokes from these shows and stuff, the pastor walked in and he said, okay guys, we're starting in one minute. Let's gather, let's pray. So they huddle up, they do this little prayer and then they go out on stage one minute later, after, after engaging in this really worldly banter, just talking all about these movies and shows and laughing at all these jokes, and then they're on stage one minute later with their hands raised to heaven and just worshiping and singing their hearts out, and it was just so jarring to me to see that kind of, like, hypocrisy like they just turned on a dime they go from worldly to spiritual like that and it didn't feel real to me I thought how can they be worshiping and loving and delighting in the things of this culture and then just switch and be worshiping and delighting the things of heaven and it really grieved me But as I began to think about it more deeply, I began to recognize that I actually had a lot of that same hypocrisy in my own life. At that time, I didn't really have clear boundaries between my walk with Christ and my involvement in the things of this world. I've shared in other messages how when Eric and I were in ministry and we're traveling all the time, we were exhausted. We didn't understand how to tap into the supernatural enabling grace of God to do what was impossible in our own strength. So in order to refuel, we would always go to these means of worldly entertainment. And we'd binge watch shows or go to whatever movie theater was nearby and just watch these movies just to kind of get our mind off of the stress and the exhaustion. And because of that, a lot of worldliness had crept into my life. Even though I was a Christian leader, I was traveling, speaking, proclaiming truth. A lot was happening through our ministry. Behind the scenes, I would say that my spiritual fire was beginning to dwindle because I was becoming preoccupied with cultural things, the things of this world. And I realized I can't point the finger at what's going on in the church and criticize the hypocrisy that I see in their lives if I'm not willing to first let God deal with it in my own life. And so I made a decision that night. I said, Lord, I'm going to start praying for a revival to come to the church, but I want you to start here. I want you to start with me. And God began a spiritual house cleaning process in my life, also in Eric's life at that time. We were realizing that we had blurred the worldliness in Christianity in our personal life. And God was asking us, are you willing to put this aside? Are you willing to replace these temporary pursuits with eternal pursuits? Are you willing to let your heart and mind and spirit become enamored with the things of heaven, things of eternal value, rather than distracted by the things of this world? And so there were books that we stopped reading. There were shows that we stopped watching. There were a lot of practical things God called us to come away from. It wasn't a legalist decision, like, okay, we're going to be spiritual now. We're going to cross this off our list. It was, we wanted to come back to that place of making Christ our first love. And we wanted to come back to that place where he was our passion. We wanted to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we wanted everything out of our life that stood in the way of that. So this was, these were decisions born out of a relationship, not out of a set of rules. And it was like a personal revival season in our life it was a reigniting of our spiritual fire it went on for months into a couple of years of just God reawakening us spiritually purging things out of our life and calling us back to make him our first love it wasn't a list of rules in order to keep compromise in our lives it was a renewed passionate pursuit of Jesus Christ and it laid the foundation for everything that we do at Ellerslie now We were no longer trying to fit him into our lives. We were back to a place of building our lives around him. And yes, we gave up some of the entertainment things that we had leaned on for distraction, but we exchanged a counterfeit for something real. When we sat in the presence of God and we began to lay our cares before him and worship him and pray to him and wrestle in prayer for these things, we were, for for victory in our life and in other people's lives, We were revived and renewed and refreshed in a way that we never had been when we were binge watching something or just kind of doing whatever was popular in the culture to do. We began to realize this is the real thing. We've been settling for a counterfeit. And there were two Christians, as I mentioned earlier, who became well-known in the 70s who both had this kind of passion for true revival on the personal level and the corporate level in the church, They had a passion for radical devotion to Jesus Christ, and both of them were grieved by the compromise that they witnessed in the church, the same way I was grieved that day sitting in the green room and seeing what I saw with that worship team. They had both been in many versions of their own green rooms throughout their years in ministry, and they saw similar things to what I saw that night and their personal calling each of them was to call the church to a higher standard not give them a list of rules to follow but to call them into that passionate devotion to jesus christ where they are no longer pining after the things of the world because they're pining after jesus and you can't have it both ways you can't love the things of the world and love jesus with all your heart and that was their message going after jesus with all of your heart soul mind and strength And when you go after Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you don't have to make yourself a list of legalistic rules to follow to keep yourself on the straight and narrow. It's the natural outflow of a life that is truly built around Christ, of someone who is truly in love with Jesus. These things don't matter to you anymore. They just pale in comparison to who he is. And as I've said in some of my other messages, there's that story about C.T. Studd's father. C.T. Studd was this wealthy young man, a cricket player in England. And his father was into like plays and parties and theater and all the popular things of the time. He was kind of like this English gentleman. And he was converted by the teaching of D.L. Moody. And when he gave his life to Christ, he went to Moody. And he said, do I have to give up like playing cards and going to parties and going to theater and doing all these fun things? And D.L. Moody said, It's not necessarily that all of those things are wrong, but when you really go after Jesus and you really fall in love with him, those things won't matter to you at all. You are going to be so passionate about Christ that the only thing that's really going to move you and motivate you, the only thing you're really going to care about is knowing him and making him known. And that's exactly what happened to C.T. Studd's father, and that's what happened to C.T. Studd, gave up his cricket playing and his wealth to go pour out his life on the mission field because of that passion for Christ not out of legalism. So let's look at these two men. Keith Green was a fiery, passionate young Christian musician who had an amazing ministry, mostly through the 70s, through his music, and died in a plane crash tragically in 1982, along with two of his young children. But his passionate music and his testimony still impacts the world and the church today. And then Leonard Ravenhill, who was an evangelist and a preacher who drew large crowds, especially during the Second World War, many of his converts in both England and America devoted themselves to Christian ministry and world evangelism. And by the time Keith Green met him in the 70s, he was the seasoned veteran, prayer warrior, and evangelist. One of the things that I appreciate about both of these men is that they're passionate for their passion for living without compromise came from a genuine passion for Jesus Christ, an on-fire personal relationship with him. A lot of us have seen the abuse of legalism in the church today and well-meaning Christians trying to rid compromise out of their lives through human effort, and it makes us want to swing in the opposite direction. We need to remember this key truth. True holy living can only come from true spiritual passion. You cannot conjure up real holy living by rules or human efforts or stiff legalism. You can't do that. that it, you might look holy on the outside, but that's not holiness on the inside. It can only come from true spiritual passion. And that is something that both Keith Green and Leonard Raven had in droves. That is why their spiritual fire was so contagious. Leonard Ravenhill used to say, there's nothing more attractive than fire. You know, if you have a fire blazing on a dark, cold night, Everyone is just drawn by its light and its warmth. And he said, when you live that way in your Christian life, people will be drawn in the same way. Let's unpack Heath Green first for a few minutes. We have his photo here. Uh, he was definitely classic 70s, big hair, you know, pointy collar, the whole bit. But he was not, he did not grow up in a Christian home. He went on a search as a teenager for truth for some sort of foundation in his life. He was searching for some sort of answer because he felt empty inside. And he looked every, he tried to pursue a career as a famous musician. When he was a young boy, he was on TV shows and really trying to promote his career and really came this close to becoming like a secular pop culture star but just the door's never fully open for him but then he got into drugs and the whole hippie movement and free love and i mean that whole lifestyle of just like traveling around and trying all kinds of psychedelic drugs and being you know one girl after the next kind of thing everything he th- could think of he tried all these different kinds of religions and finally he encountered Jesus Christ and once he found Jesus he knew he had the truth and he was a very passionate person he was all in for Jesus and his whole life became about going to anyone and everyone he could find and saying, do you know Jesus? I want you to know him like I know him. And yet, as he continued just sharing the gospel everywhere he went, along with his wife, Melody, he became confused by the compromise he saw in the church because he couldn't understand why people who had found the truth, he had searched his whole life, tried all of these things, and finally found it, and he thought, if we finally have the truth here, why would we be apathetic and allow compromise to rule our lives? Why wouldn't we take this seriously? Why wouldn't we make our whole lives about knowing Jesus and making him known? That began to grieve his heart. Why would the church live like the rest of the world when they had found the way, the truth, and the life? That was the question burning on his heart. And he began to use the music talent that God had given him to stir and awaken holiness and true spiritual passion within the church, to convict of sin, and to call Christians to a radically sold-out life and a life that passionately pursues Jesus and doesn't get enamored by the things of this world. Now, there are so many things I could say about Keith Green. If you just listen to his music, you'll hear that spiritual passion in all of his songs. But one story that I wanted to highlight today illustrates the way that he used his music platform. It happened at the Jesus Northwest Festival in the late 1970s. And even reading this story, it's from the book No Compromise, even reading it decades later, I still find it very, very convicting, very powerful. As Amy Carmichael used to say, when you hear a message that is so on point and so convicting, it like scorches you. It lights a fire within you, and that's kind of what this story does for me. So this is an excerpt from No Compromise, the life story of Keith Green, written from Melody Green, his wife, her perspective. And it's about what happened at this festival. That July, while the album was being pressed, Keith had been invited to sing at a major Jesus festival. The organizers wanted Keith to be the closing person on the last night, which was quite an honor. The festival was called Jesus Northwest near Salem, Oregon. It normally drew about 20,000 people, but this year an estimated 35,000 people were there. As we were driven in, it was exciting to know so many people who wanted to get closer to God. And we loved hearing that a traffic jam had clogged the roads for two or three miles, which had the police frantic. Once inside the festival area, we saw the campsites overflowing with thousands of tents jammed up side by side. It was all one big glorious mess of confusion and excitement. Because the festival continued for several days in open fields under a blazing sun, many had stripped down to the bare minimum to beat the heat. Keith and I thought it looked like a mini Woodstock hippie gathering. It was great that so many people there were enjoying the Lord and enjoying each other, but as we began to feel more of the vibe, something seemed amiss to us. It was a huge success, and the promoters were blown away, but the real question was what the outcome would be from an eternal perspective. Would everyone go home thinking, wow, that was a lot of fun, or was there something God wanted to say to everyone? Inside the hospitality trailer, the man who put the festival together expressed his concern to Keith. We have success in numbers, but I'm not sure what's happening in the spirit. On the last evening of the event, several of us gathered in the little trailer to pray before Keith's Keith's turn to go on stage and close the evening. Our friend, Winky Prattney, who lived in East Texas, was there with his wife, Faye, and son, Billy. Winky, I don't know where the name came from, (laughs) Winky, uh, had been one of the main speakers and had stayed on to be a support to Keith. By now, Keith and Winky had developed such a close friendship that Winky was like an older brother and mentor to Keith. But just now, both Winky and Keith were troubled, not about what happened at the festival, but what had not happened. We'd all heard the emphasis of the festival had been on music, lots of it and loud. There were some speakers too, but hardly anyone had given a challenge for change or commitment. The place was packed, but some were saying there had been no real move of God, that it was just one big party. Keith and Winky felt strongly that if nothing happened, it was a waste of a festival. There was a piano in the trailer, and Keith crawled under it to get alone with God and pray. That was something he was known for at his concerts or before his concert. He wanted to get alone with God and prepare so he would crawl under the piano to pray. That was a signature thing that he did. He'd be closing out the festival in just a few minutes. From where I was praying, I could hear Keith softly crying. There was a tentative knock at the trailer door. Someone summoned Winky outside to see a young blonde girl who had asked to speak with him. She had tears in her eyes. Winky recognized her from the Youth with a Mission booth there at the festival. She was timid, but at the same time, she had a gentle boldness as she spoke. Excuse me, but I felt a little grieved during this festival because it doesn't seem like God has been given a chance to speak what's on his heart. There's been no breakthrough. We've had counseling tents and prayer meetings, but nobody from the stage has said anything about getting right with God. She looked shyly at Winky and pressed a folded piece of paper into his hand saying, I don't know if you can give this to any of the leaders, but I was praying and well, I really felt like God gave me this scripture. While Winky was outside, I looked over at Keith. I could hear loud weeping and choking sobs coming out from under the piano. In between sobbing, Keith prayed out loud, oh God, what do you want me to say? What do you want me to do? When Winky walked back inside the trailer, he was reading from a small piece of paper in his hand. At the same moment, Keith's head popped out from under the piano and he said, Winky, isn't there a scripture somewhere about festivals? Winky looked up from the paper in shock. Yes, he said, I just happened to have one. A young girl just gave it to me. When Keith read the slip of paper, his mouth dropped open. A few minutes later, he carried it out on stage with him. When Keith walked into the spotlight, the crowd burst into a prolonged roar of applause, whistles, and cheers. He sat at the piano and adjusted the microphone, waiting for things to settle down a bit. Then he turned to the crowd and, still wiping a few tears away, started talking. Have you ever felt the Lord was sad? Most people think, no, no, the Lord's always happy. Well, tonight I was praying, and I kind of felt the Lord inside of me weeping, so I started to cry. I got to thinking about all the people that give God one day a week. How would you like it if your wife gave you one day a week? Well, dear, I'm here for the weekly visit. People like to visit God from 10 to 11 on Sunday mornings, like visiting time at the local jail. Lord, how you doing in there? Are they treating you all right? Is the food okay? We're working on getting you out. Well, I'll see you next week. I'd gone over to the side of the crowd to watch Keith on stage. As with any outdoor event, the crowd was a little restless and distracted. And tonight, it didn't help matters that an afternoon thunderstorm left two inches of squishy mud on the ground. I could tell people there were waiting for Keith to start singing, and eventually he did but the song he chose to open with was anything but lighthearted to the newly recorded the newly recorded to obey is better than sacrifice ending with the last two lines if you can't come to me every day then don't bother coming at all as soon as he hit the last lingering chord he started talking again i was listening to everybody singing worship songs before and nobody deserves praise and worship But Jesus, that's a beautiful thing. But what if your wife said, I love you, but you knew she didn't honor you and love you in her heart, that you weren't the most important person on earth to her. And in fact, she had a couple of other men she liked to look at and think about more than you. How sick would it be for you to hear, oh, darling, I love you? What do the words I love you mean? If you praise and worship Jesus with your mouth and your life does not praise and worship him, there's something wrong. I want you to go away from here broken and blessed in that order. I don't want you to go away from here under condemnation, but I want you to get broken before God because unless you're a broken vessel, he can't put you back together the way he wants you. In the Old Testament, it says, these people draw near to me with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. The crowd was totally quiet now, I noticed one young guy toward the front wearing cutoffs in a Jesus is Lord t-shirt. He leaned forward with a serious look on his face. It was then that Keith reached into his pocket and pulled out a slip of paper, the paper Winky had given him. I suspected things were going to get even more serious as he started to read. This is a scripture out of Amos. Thus saith the Lord, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings, I will not accept them. Take away the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Does anybody understand what that means? Some of you do. Among 35,000 so-called Christians, there is always a remnant of real ones peppered in. My job as a minister is to make sure that every person here leaves a real one, but I can't do it. I'm nothing but dust. Keith looked at the sky and said, I depend on you, Lord Jesus. His words had the effect of a shotgun blast. The crowd sat in stunned silence, the first silence I'd heard all night. I glanced quickly at the guy in the Jesus T-shirt again. He was, just sitting on there, um, he was just sitting there with his mouth open. I wondered what he was thinking as Keith continued. How many of us care about the people living next door to us? How many of your neighbors have ever seen anything more than a little fish on your car? They think you work at the fish market. If you could get really bold, you could put the Greek letters in there in case you run into a Greek truck driver. What's going on? As for me, I repent of ever having made a record or ever having sung a song unless it provoked people to follow Jesus, to lay down their whole lives before him, to give him everything. It doesn't cost you much to follow Jesus, just everything. Keith talked about how reaching the world, Keith talked about reaching the world, not just being responsible for what we see, but for what we know. He hit really hard when he compared the average Christian to a 300-pound baby growing overweight on the teachings of Jesus, but never exercising his faith. The best, the best exercise I know is hitting the streets for Christ, door to door, ghettos, prisons, old age homes, orphanages, high schools, colleges. Why don't you do it? You say, "Cause I don't feel led." You feel led, all right. It's just a different kind of led. Keith had been preaching for more than thirty minutes, and he knew people were wondering if he was going to sing any more songs. Hey, look, he said, "I've heard all. I've heard all my songs, and all." And God's heard all my songs, too. I don't think he's that interested. Don't worry, I'm going to sing again. But it's the least important part of what I've got to do tonight. He did sing a few more songs, The Sheep and the Goats from Matthew 25, and asleep in the Light, but they only serve to underscore his hard-hitting message. Then he prayed. Lord Jesus, I repent for our sin of not caring about all the lost souls around us, for not caring about all the hungry people. Lord Jesus, I repent for all of us, for playing church and not being Christians, for being part of religion but not being your children who are broken before your throne and put together in your spirit. When Keith sang, my eyes are dry and taught it to everyone, he started to weep, his voice cracking with emotion. My eyes are dry, my faith is old, my heart is hard, my prayers are cold, and I know how I ought to be, alive to you and dead to me. Oh, what can be done with an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me anew in the wine of your blood. Then with tears streaming down his face, Keith prayed again, Lord, we're sorry. Lord, we're sorry for having such deceitful hearts and weak flesh for being children of our own desires instead of being children of your desires, <clears throat> being children of religion rather than children of truth. Lord Jesus, please save us from ourselves and from institutions, corner our flesh, crucify our flesh, kill our own desires. Do you know why the rich young ruler would be, would be accepted in any church today? because, but, sorry, there's some typos here, but Jesus wouldn't accept him. Why? Because he had an idol in his life. Do you know who the Christian idols are today? I happen to be one of them, and then this is back in the 70s, so are Andre Crouch, Evie, B.J. Thomas. Probably don't even know who those people are now. You can even idolize your pastors. They don't want to be idolized. They never asked you for it, but remember that applause you gave me when I walked out? I didn't hear you applaud the Lord like that any time today. We're more excited about a second chapter of Acts concert that was a group back then, than we are about the second coming, sin. This was tough stuff. I wondered what everyone was thinking about Keith's message. How did a bunch of people who thought they were Christians feel about having their salvation challenged? It seemed to me it was we needed a good challenge. And if the young fellow I had been watching was any indication the Lord was doing good things, He had his arms wrapped around his legs and his head bowed on his knees. Keith continued, "'The rich young ruler came to Jesus, and Jesus said, "'You still lack something. Go away. I can't take you right now.'" "'Who today would say, I'm sorry, brother. I can't lead you in the sinner's prayer. You've got to give up your dope, your selfishness, your love of possessions, your clingingness to your family, friends, and your life.'" Aren't you a little disappointed how Jesus handled such a sinner? Didn't the Lord know how to lead a soul to himself?' The requirement for salvation is not just prayer. The the requirement is an open, totally empty heart that's ready to be full of Jesus Christ. After saying the sinner's prayer, if in a few months your friends can't tell you're born again, if your relatives can't see a change in you, if your teacher can't see that you're a Christian, then you're probably not. But let me tell you something, when you're born again, they get excited. It changes the way they live. When people get born again, they get excited. It changes the way they live, what they do, how they speak, how they act, what they do with their money, their cars, their girlfriends, it's all different. Then how come it looks the same? How come Christians are trying to ride the line? I challenge anybody who calls himself a Christian, which means little Christ, to live as Jesus did, or else somebody might say, I never knew you. I'm going to get on my knees every day and say, God, search my heart and see if there be any wicked way in me. I don't want to go astray. I want to be right with you. You can't get into heaven by being a nice guy. You might end up being the nicest guy in hell. Finally, Keith gave a challenge to everyone in the audience, first to the people who had never given their lives to Christ and then to people who consider themselves Christians but had never given Jesus every hope, dream, possession, every friend and every loved one. If you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus, it's because of two things. One, because of your sin. Two, because of the hypocrisy in the people around you, including me. If you don't know Jesus, you've got two choices. And I'm not going to say heaven or hell. I'm going to say you can follow Jesus or you can hate him. You can sit on the, you can't sit on the fence. Those who are not with him are against him. Then Keith asked people to bow their heads and pray, Lord, we ask you for a miracle. There are no words I can say, no song I can sing to convict the sinner. Only your wonderful Holy Spirit can do anything. Send our spirit-touching hearts to repent. Keith turned to the crowd. If you want Jesus Christ to completely take over your life, you're willing to die for him, give him every possession, every friend, every loved one, every plan, every hope, every dream. You're willing to give it all up if necessary. I'm not saying that is what he wants you to do, but you are willing. If you're willing to come before his throne empty handed, raise your hand. If you can't look him in the eye and know that you've been living a pleasing life before him, then get your hand up and make it right. Jesus Christ is not your savior unless he's the Lord of your life. And Lord means he owns and controls lock, stock, and barrel your destiny, your future, and your present. And he throws away your past as far as the east is from the west. "'I looked at the young guy I had been watching "'to see if his hand was up. "'Instead, he was flat on his face, "'right in the mud, along with many others. "'Other hands were up everywhere, thousands of them. "'Not only that, weeping and loud crying broke out "'all across the open grassy field. "'It was awesome. "'I could hear people sobbing and choking out prayers to God. "'Then Keith asked everyone who was making Jesus "'Lord of their life for the first time to stand.' To my shock, almost everyone in the crowd stood. Keith was so surprised, he thought they must not have understood him. So he clarified it. This is not a rededication. This is the first time that you've really ever understood what making Jesus Christ your Lord meant. Do you really mean it? Wow. How many people here realize that when they get home, they have a lot of things to get rid of and a lot of things to change in their lives? A brother down here in front says he has to remodel his whole bedroom. You've got to remodel your whole heart, and then the outside's going to change. Then Keith called Winky, Faye, and me up on the stage, and we all led worship with Keith for about an, half an hour. That's the way the festival ended. Keith slipped quietly down from the stage, raw and totally exhausted. He had delivered his soul. I was the first one to encourage him about how powerfully the Lord used him, but there were many others waiting to tell him the same thing. For Keith, it was totally overwhelming. As we drove across the festival grounds on our way back to our motel, we saw lots of people lying before God out in the fields or on their knees praying. It felt like a holy hush had descended and was still lingering, gripping every hungry heart. That story is so amazing to me. How many Christian musicians before or after Keith Green have ever used their talents or their platform like that. When he's saying it wasn't just for entertainment, it wasn't for self-glory at all, he was willing to be kicked out, he was willing to be, look, look like a fool, he was willing for people never to even buy his records if he could get that message to the church. When he's saying people were convicted, revived, renewed, and set on fire spiritually, he opened himself up to be rejected by his fans, he went, again, he went totally against what was normal and what was accepted in the Christian system all for the glory of God. And maybe that's why his songs still impact today, even though they were written back in the 70s. Keith Green was part of a Christian music industry during a time when it was a little more common for artists to actually use their talents for the glory of God, but he definitely was head and shoulders above everyone else in how he used his platform. My dad gave his life to Christ in the early 70s. <clears throat> and music, even though he's not musical, music was a very big part of his early walk with Christ. Those those songs from Keith Green and other artists like Evie and Second Chapter of Acts and Dallas Holm and these, these ones that were coming on the scene in the 70s, a lot of them really had a genuine passion for Christ. There was a genuine movement of God happening among Christian artists back then. And Keith Green was definitely leading the pack of getting back to what really matters. If we're going to use music, it has to be for the glory of God. And even to this day, my dad is still moved when he hears those old songs because they remind him of when he was coming to Christ in a passionate way. But things in the Christian music industry have digressed tremendously since that Jesus Northwest festival, since that time in the 1970s when my dad was so convicted by a lot of those songs since the days of Keith Green. And honestly, what we see happening today is even more disturbing than that party atmosphere that was happening at that festival back in the 70s. Eric and I, a number of years ago, spoke at several festivals that were very similar to this one. Hundreds of thousands of people out in the hot sun with their tents, one big Christian party, and they brought in a few speakers. It was mostly about music. We were the token speakers at many of them. I remember one of these festivals being again in the green room and getting ready to go out and speak. But before we were going to speak, there were some artists that were going to perform. And the only way to really be ready to where where we needed to go was to sit in the green room until they were done performing and then go out on stage. One of the groups that performed before us was a group of young men, and it was kind of a boy band. This was back in the time when boy bands were super popular in the world. So some of you are way too young to even remember back then, but it was like the uh, Backstreet Boys and those kind of groups. And it was like the Christian music industry would look at whatever was popular in the world and make the Christian version of it. We still do that today. But back then, this was what was happening. And they had the Christian boy band. I can't remember their name. But they were very much like the Backstreet Boy kind of vibe. And they were out there in front of a crowd of about 150,000 people. Festivals have grown since the days of Keith Green. And in the first probably 10 rows were all teenage girls, so 10, you know, thousands of teenage girls. And these were young guys in their late teens, early 20s. And they were singing and dancing on the stage. And they were playing to the crowd. And it was not worshipful. It was very showy. It was very self-glorifying and a little bit sensual. And then, of course, it's in the middle of the day, and it's in the summer, and it's very hot, and they're sweating because they're dancing up on the stage. And they had put these towels down by the monitors on the stage for the artists if they got too hot. So they got these towels, they wiped off their sweaty faces, and then guess what they did? They threw their sweaty towels to the crowd of screaming teenage girls who fought over them. Keith was talking about idols. Well, this was idol worship, and we were watching it. Across the the stage at this festival, the organizers had hung a banner that said, a tribute to our creator. But every artist that we saw perform on that stage was not giving a tribute to the creator. They were giving a tribute to the creation. Another festival we went to, we were in a green room again getting ready to speak. And we met a man who had been a very famous Christian singer in the 70s and 80s. Now he was a Christian music producer. He was the president of the largest Christian record label in the country at that time. And we looked at him and didn't know who he was because he looked like a homeless guy. He was like this kind of sad, droopy, sloppy, depressed guy. And unshaven, unkempt, and Eric felt sorry for him. He's like this wealthy guy, like this huge influencer in the Christian music industry, but that's kind of how he, the vibe that he gave off. And Eric went over to talk to him because he felt sorry for him, thinking, you know, he's got to be like a janitor person or something that's in here, and found out who he was. I came over to talk and we started asking about what we were seeing on stage in these artists, these young kids who were very self-glorifying and how so much of it seemed about human idol worship. We had been in tents next to some of these artists at this festival, and people would line up to get their pictures signed. And these guys from these bands, these Christian bands, would have their sunglasses on under these tents, and they'd have their 8x10 glossies where they're standing there all cool with these poses, and they'd sign their name. They wouldn't even talk to the people. They'd just hand out their picture. And people would line up for hours in the hot sun to get that. And so we talked to this music producer about it, and he said, you know, it's really sad because a lot of these young artists, they don't care anything about ministry or sharing the gospel, they just want to be on stage. And they don't care if a secular company signed them, they'd go sing in bars and at secular concerts. We sign them, they sing at these festivals, they just want to be on stage. But you know, in the end, this is a business and we have to make money, and these are the people that the crowds crowds listen to, and these are the people that we can sell their records, and we have to make money to keep going, so we just sign them anyway even though we know their heart is not for ministry. Some of them aren't even really Christians. That was very sad to us. We've been at at music events and Christian events where Christian artists will have a whole entourage. They'll wear their sunglasses indoors. They'll have their little one girl, who's a very popular singer, has her little poodle, her sunglasses, like five entourage behind her. And they walk around and they get treated like celebrities. We've seen this over and over and over again. We've seen Christian musicians living in mansions and treated like celebrities and Christian artists who their ultimate goal is to open a show for one of the most popular secular artists out there. And they look at that as the pinnacle of their career, even though they can't use that platform to share the gospel. But just the fact that they're acknowledged by the world as having the same talent as a secular artist, they look at that as a success. And we've seen what's happening in the church with trendy, showy worship that maybe has good lyrics, but has been used to draw a generation into spiritual error and danger. I'm not going to say more about that, but some of you know what I'm talking about. As Keith Green said, there is such a danger in stealing the glory that belongs to God and in Christians who worship the creation more than the creator, of using our gifts to entertain rather than point eyes to Jesus, and of blending our Christianity with worldliness. And that was what he was really hitting on at that festival today. Are we just coming together to listen to some good music and have a big party, or do our lives really belong to Jesus? He talked about the dangers of living just like the world so that the world approves of how we live and what we do and what we spend our time on because if that's the case, he's saying you're not actually living the Christian life. As a reminder, Catherine Booth said, when the church and the world can jog comfortably together, you may be sure there is something wrong. The world has not altered. Its spirit is the same as it ever was. And if Christians were equally faithful and devoted to the Lord and separated from the world, living so that their lives were a reproof to all ungodliness, the world would hate them as much as it ever did. Keith Green was hated by a lot of people because of what he did. When we really live for Jesus, the world will not applaud us. Maybe temporarily, if we achieve a momentary success like Eric Little when he won the gold medal, but when Eric Little went on to China to become a missionary and gave up his athletics, the world was not applauding him. As we are navigating as Christians in our modern culture, let's not forget this key truth. God uses the foolish things to shame the wise. He does not esteem human strength, intelligence, talent, or popularity. In fact, he often selects the least impressive vessels to deliver his most important messages. That's why when all of these... Fancy, flashy artists were up on stage at these festivals that we were seeing. God was not in that. It was just entertainment. And if anything, it was a distraction from God. But think about who God uses. Moses, before he led Israel, was a forgotten exile on the backside of the desert. David was a disregarded shepherd boy. Before he defeated Goliath, he wasn't even invited to the battle. He wasn't even considered worthy to be one of of the army. And most of the apostles were uneducated fishermen. Why does God use seemingly weak vessels like these? Because those who are impressive by human standards are all too often tempted to steal the glory that belongs to God alone. And that's what we see happening in the Christian music industry today and in many other areas of the church. Only those of us who are willing to lay down self-glory, to look foolish, will truly be used for the glory of God 1 Corinthians one twenty six and 27. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many influential. Not many of noble birth. But God uses the foolish things. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And then again, let no man deceive himself. If any man amongst you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness. Before God Keith screens life challenge us to ask the question are we willing to become foolish to this world or even to the church to give up everything to radically follow Jesus to not jog comfortably with the world but to be separate from the world for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing and foolishness there means absurdity your life is going to look absurd to the world when you follow the narrow way of the cross, are you willing to say yes to that? If you walk the way of the cross, your decisions will conce- will seem completely absurd to the world around you, even to the church a lot of times. They will often mock, reject, misunderstand us just as they did Jesus. We cannot seek the applause of the world and the applause of heaven at the same time. We cannot serve popularity and Jesus Christ at the same time. We have to choose between worldly applause and heaven's applause. As Jesus said, whoever humble, exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted." Keith Green is one of the few who chose heaven's applause over this world's applause, and his legacy still lives to this day. Not surprisingly, Keith was friends with another fiery man of God whom I mentioned earlier, Leonard Ravenhill. We have his photo. This is when he was much younger. When Keith met him, he was much older, and, but this was him as a young man. Leonard Ravenhill was mentored personally by A.W. Tozer, and then he in turn became a mentor to Keith Green. And his story is Incredible! I don't have time to go into all of it today. I would highly recommend his books, Why Revival? Terry's Revival Praying. His messages—they're very hard to read because they're super convicting, but they stir a fire within your soul. They're not convicting in a way that brings condemnation. They're convicting in a way that stirs your spiritual fire. So when Keith Green got to know Leonard Ravenhill, Keith was this energetic new Christian, and Leonard was an older, seasoned veteran prayer warrior and evangelist. But they shared the same spiritual fire, and they shared the same vision to see. Christians embrace a life of no compromise and radical devotion to Christ. When I read Leonard Ravenhill's books or hear his old radio interviews, it does stir a fire within my soul. Probably the most powerful interview I ever heard was a living room conversation that someone recorded with him when he was 84 years old, not long before he died. I just want to close this message by sharing just a few excerpts from that interview that convicted inspired, and inspired me all throughout my Christian life. And if you want to know the name of it, it's called A Man of God Interview with Leonard Ravenhill. It's not not easy. It's not well-produced. He rambles a lot. You really have to listen and focus, but there are some gems in that interview. It's worth listening to. So this was just how he, uh, one of the things he opened the interview with, he was talking about his conversion and his father's influence on him. And I, I shared this, if you're here at Ellerslie, I shared this in my spiritual fervor message. But his, his father's zeal for God is what, Leonard Ravenhill, what brought Leonard Ravenhill to Christ. He said, I was 14, and I wanted to understand my father's zeal for God. My daddy relished reading the word, and he relished going to prayer meetings, even half nights of prayer. He relished being, being a street corner preacher. My daddy had inspired zeal. God had lifted the beggar from the dunghill. He completely changed my daddy. He had been born in a certain system of religion that was based in fear, and then he got marvelously born again. He became fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. I never saw him downcast. I never saw him thinking about giving up. When he got saved, he tossed away his interest in professional football and everything else. I saw his joy, even though we lived in comparative poverty and hadn't much money because my daddy was a laborer. I remember him taking me to a half night of prayer when I was 14 and my daddy, who was a big husky man, taking off his coat at one o'clock in the morning in a room that had no heat and praying with tears and fervor. From that very day, I recognized there was something far beyond what the average Christian had. I got saved at 14. I'm 84 now. I've seen all kinds of tragedies in the church. I've seen wars and rumors of wars. I've seen popular men go unpopular. But I keep looking to Jesus. And remember these old paths that my daddy used to talk about so much, and it makes all the rest look like trivia. One thing I love about that portion of Leonard Ravenhill's testimony is here he was 84 years old. And he doesn't remember his father's, the, the money his father gave him, the education his father gave him, the opportunities his father gave him. He remembers his father's spiritual passion. And that lit a fire in his own soul and that stayed with him all the way till he's 84 years old. And that fire is continuing to light fires in others. And I also love the fact that his father had true joy. He gave up all these distractions in his life, not out of like an obligation, but he had such joy in the Lord, he didn't want those things anymore. That's what it means to live with no compromise, truly no compromise. So I'm just going to share a few excerpts from that interview. When he talks about the old paths, he talks about a life singularly focused on Jesus Christ where nothing else matters. So he's talking about Bible school the old-fashioned way. This was the Bible school he went to. There were no TVs in those days. There were radios, but you couldn't take a radio. You couldn't take an automobile. When you went on a campus, you stayed from October till Christmas, then you went home for a few days, came back, and stayed till Easter. You could get a haircut, but you couldn't go shopping. You couldn't drive a car, anything. There were no girls there. They were too distracted. We came there to know the Word of God, and they did a pretty good job helping us do that. But now I know a boy who went to Bible school, and his daddy gave him a new car, bought him new clothes, a new set of golf clubs. His father bribed him with everything he wanted just to make him want to stay there. He was comparing true spiritual passion with, like, propped-up Christianity. He talked about evangelism. Now, there's so much there's so much treasure in this interview. I'm just highlighting a few things, but you really need to hear the whole thing. He's talking about evangelism, and this, I thought, was so convicting and so powerful about how we as Christians win souls to Christ. He says, we have to get them back to the gospel. The biggest hindrance to revival today is modern-day evangelism. I mean, think about that. He thinks the biggest hindrance to revival is evangelism. So something Christians are doing, trying to win the world, is hindering revival. The most horrible thing I know happens in evangelism today. We don't value the human soul. When are we going to get serious about being serious about the most serious thing in the world, the birth of people at the altar? I watched the close of a service in Dallas a few weeks ago. At the end, 15 people came in four minutes. They said a quick prayer and went away. Well, my reaction to that brother was, I can't get my car through a car in four minutes. Can they pass from death to life? Can they put off the old man and put on the new? As you use the figure, can they get married to Christ in four minutes? When I was an evangelist, we used to go to a city without money and pitch a tent and stay there for 12 weeks. And the churches we planted are still going today. I spent 50 years of my life in street meetings. Every Saturday night, I went out at 9.30 until midnight. And every night, For months, I think is what it says. Whether it was snowing or raining or what, we went out at the same place, and people came out of taverns and out of movie houses at ten o'clock, and they stayed for an hour and two hours in the cold, not in air-conditioned buildings. No nice, attractive singers. They were changed. One used to be in jail. Another used to run around with women. This man has a prison record. This man over there used to beat his wife, and they're transformed. This girl was a prostitute, and everyone saw the change. Living flesh and blood. Nobody could argue. We went, brother. We had a solid hour of prayer together at eleven o'clock to twelve in the morning then had a bit of a rest in the afternoon and mostly went to prayer and then we had a prayer meeting 1 hour before the service and went on the platform charged with the power of God and full of expectation and faith and night by night the altars were lined with people well we didn't need to advertise in the paper i was the best known man in town even though the cathedral was only 300 yards away for us from us magnificent cathedral i got 500 sunday night they stood outside lined up like a movie house and the cathedral got 50 So where do you go? I mean, the cathedral is ornate. It had gold plates, gold communion things, and candlesticks. It was like a miniature Wesleyan style with stained glass windows. But what is that to the glory of God? Our our place was packed an hour before time. Our prayer meetings were packed. We had three prayer meetings a week and three street meetings. And that was why the church kept in continuous revival for the three years I was there and it is still there today. We don't do that today. Our churches have got this popular song, and Miss So-and-so is number one on the charts. We're depending on something we have. I mean, you go to one church service and you've been to them all. We're trying to work something up and God has to send something down. It takes four hours to get a baby giraffe born. He talks about watching the special about a baby giraffe being born. It doesn't take four minutes to get someone born at our altars today. Was Gethsemane a few minutes? Was the temptation in the wilderness a few minutes? I guarantee that not 5% of people in America and England are genuinely born again of the spirit. They're born of a decision. They gave up a few lousy habits. Some of them do and some of them don't. They go right back and they say there's nothing in it. You ask 10 people in your church to answer in less than 50 words why Jesus came into the world, and they'll say, to save us from hell, to save us from sin, and so they go on, but Jesus is saying in John 17 that they might know thee, the only true God. We don't know God today. If we knew God, we would set the world on fire. So powerful. I'm going to skip over some of this since we're a little bit over time, but I'm going to just jump to his his, uh, quote on prayer from this interview. The Bible says pray without ceasing. It doesn't say preach without ceasing. It doesn't say do miracles. It says pray. If somebody asked me whether I know a certain man, I might say, well, I met him, but I don't really know anybody until I have prayed with him. I don't care who he is. Another time in a different interview or a different book, Leonard Ravenhill said this. No man is greater than his prayer life. The pastor who is not praying is playing. The people who are not praying are straying. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. Many players and payers, few prayers. Many singers, few clingers. Lots of pastors, few wrestlers. Many fears, few tears. Much fashion, little passion. Many interferers and few intercessors. Many writers, but few fighters. Failing here, we fail everywhere. I am going to go back, actually, because this is just too good. It's it's about missionaries. If you can skip back in my keynote, I decided I didn't want to skip this part. It's it's short. But he's talking about Jackie Pullinger and Amy Carmichael, true missionaries, who go giving everything. So he says, he's talking about Jackie Pullinger, who went to the walled city of Hong Kong for most of her life, a a place even law enforcement wouldn't go. He said, do you know Jackie Pullinger? Well, she was here to see me, and I mean, she goes, she is with God until 10 o'clock at night. She goes to the gutters, she goes to the outcasts, she goes to the prostitutes. She goes to men who have smoked opium for 50 years. She goes to women that have been prostitutes for 40 years. You've got to have the gospel to do that. You can't give a mental flip to those people. She stays with them until they are born again of the spirit of God. That's one of the most amazing works in the world as far as I'm concerned. But where are the people who will do that today? What about Amy Carmichael? You know, she wrote, give me a love that leads the way, a faith that nothing can dismay, a hope that no disappointments tire, a passion that will burn like fire. Let me not sink to be a clod, make me thy fuel, O flame of God. That's one of Amy Carmichael's poems. That woman didn't weigh over 100 pounds. She never married. She took a one-way ticket to the mission field. Missionaries who go now, there's plenty of money now. Their church says, oh, we'd love to have you come back for Christmas and Thanksgiving. Do come back. So they break up and come back. They go back and forth. They run to and fro. They have to go with their camera. They have to go with their load of stuff. You don't find the old-fashioned missionaries going like they used to. Jackie went on a single ticket to Hong Kong when she was 19. She's 44 now. She's still there. She shed a million tears, but she's had some of the greatest characters, infamous characters, saved there. So he's comparing what he calls the old past When it comes to Bible school, evangelism, mission work, prayer, this is what we have to get back to, the gospel, all in for Jesus, not playing at Christianity. And every one of his messages and books bring us back to that truth. So I just want to close with a few final thoughts here. How can we avoid mediocre Christianity? How can we avoid this apathy that so quickly takes a hold of our churches and our personal lives? We have to stop waffling between the world and the cross. We have to stop jogging comfortably along with the world. A lot of us want to embrace Christianity only so far as it does not threaten our comforts or our popularity. It's easy to want to join a Christian movement or a church or something for the social dynamic of it or just being a part of something. But true set-apartness means clinging to the cross and lifting it. high for the world to see. It means living in such a way that leaves no questions as to where our true loyalties lie. When people observe our lives they should live see us living unashamedly, embracing the cross and our lives that boldly say I'm with Jesus. <clears throat> what will really change the world today? Back in Keith Green Day, <clears throat> Keith Green's Day, they thought, you know, big movements and festivals and big, you know, loud music that's going to make an impact. But it was only somebody like Keith who was willing to say what needed to be said and look like a fool to say it that made any kind of lasting change. There's a modern mindset that we have in the church that says we need to be like the world, appeal to the world in order to reach it. And I've, we see that everywhere in Christianity today. I remember speaking at a woman's event and sharing about radically coming away with Jesus and the woman who was leading it said, you're being too extreme. I don't want these women to think that they can't, you know, do all the same things that the rest of the world is doing because then nobody, they'll never have a witness for Christ if they live like an island unto themselves. And she thought it was too extreme. But what did Jesus say? If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So think about that. Jesus is saying the world is going to hate us when we follow that narrow way of the cross. He also says... That we are to reach the world, be salt and light in this world, go into the world and make all disciples. So it's obviously the two can go together, being hated by the world and impacting the world. But we have it backwards. We think, well, the only way to impact the world is to be loved by the world, to be liked by the world, to be applauded by the world. Here's the key truth. True Christianity will influence the world, but it will never be applauded by the world. True Christianity has always been and always will be offensive to the culture, and it's only when we no longer care what we look like to this world that we can truly impact them for Jesus Christ. Being set apart is not a hamper to our Christian witness. Being set apart is our Christian witness. We need to have a shift of focus. Churches often assume that the world is rejecting Christianity today because we aren't enough like the culture. So a lot of churches hire marketing companies to help the church become more culturally relevant. But the world isn't rejecting Christianity because we aren't enough like the culture. It's rejecting Christianity because we are too much like the culture. There is often nothing different about our lives, nothing that proves we found something bigger to live for than temporary pleasure, nothing that says we have found something worth dying for but that is what Keith Green and Leonard Ravenhill did. They had found something worth dying for, and that's the message that their life proclaimed. As Leonard Ravenhill said, when we really know God, we will set the world on fire. The best way to respond to a message like this, to Keith Green's fiery words, to Leonard Ravenhill's fiery conviction, is not with condemnation when we recognize, wow, God's calling me to something more. It's with surrender, okay, Lord, I give everything to you. Work through me. Take my life and let it be consecrated unto thee. So may the examples of these two men cause us to make a statement within our own souls. Lord, send a revival and let it begin with me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your powerful truth, your jealous love and guardianship over us that you have called us to become separate and set apart from this world, not through some legalistic stiff way, but through passionate devotion to you. And I pray that each one of us would fall so in love with you and so, uh, be so spiritually on fire that all the, the enticements of the world would just fall empty by the wayside and that we would not be enamored with the things of this world, that we would be captivated by you, that we would live lives of no compromise by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.